allowed us to be a part of it. And it is such an honor to be with you guys today. Uh, you got to know that as I was worshiping this morning, just overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness that God would allow me to be in this church uh, for this divine time with your, with your beautiful faces. Man, you guys all look good. You need to know that. I mean, there's a bunch of supermodels leading worship. I'm like, what's going on? What, where are these people coming from? Like, where did the, where are you, where are you growing these people? Like, I don't, I don't get it. You know, like, just unbelievable and, and such a significant church. You guys know that God's doing something very special in Connect Church and very special through the New Life Movement. Anyone agree with that? And, and there, would, there wouldn't be a place I'd rather be, you know, than right here, right now in this moment. I believe it's a divine time. And none of us would be here if it wasn't for some fearless leaders um, who said yes to God's call to lead this church and lead this movement and, you know, have been ministering and married for plus 30 years, which is unbelievable. We got married when they were nine, you know, just to, but can we give it up for your senior leaders, Pastor Adam and Anita? Can we honor them this morning? Thank you guys for being such visionaries. Thank you for loving with such great risk. Thank you for still serving Jesus and raising a family that loves God. Thank you for believing in this community and these people. Come on. I love you guys. Thank you guys. Anyone ready for God's word this morning? I can tell you're already responsive, and I can, since it's October fire, you can turn your response level up this morning. You can shout me down. You can say, preach a white boy. You can say, I like your skinny jeans. You can yell a go all blacks out. Like, that's fine. If there's a, there's the greatest team in, a, in the world, right? Go all blacks. And, and uh, you can, if it's a profanity, we're glad you're here. There's grace for your race. Just maybe don't yell it. You could whisper it, you know, just slowly underneath your breath. But we're just so glad that you would take this journey with you. In fact, you know, a lot of people think, especially maybe when they come from America, like, hey, they're, they're just, you know, trying to hype us up or make us alive. But, you know, there's actually a biblical principle be behind response. In fact, the Bible says that all the promises, sorry to start teaching before we get in the message, but I think this is going to help us for the whole week. But the Bible says that all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that amazing that when it comes to everything that God has promised you, the list of promises for your family, for your kids, for your legacy, for your city, for your nation, he's already said yes. Every single promise he's already said yes. But then it says, and with our amen, which means God's promises aren't looking for your assessment. They're looking for your agreement. How often do we come to a service on Sunday and we sit back and say, maybe, is that possible? Could that take place? Maybe not in the timeline. No, God's promises aren't waiting for you to assess them. They're looking for you to just simply agree with them, which means when you say amen, you're not putting a period at the end of a sentence or a prayer. You're putting an exclamation point at the beginning of a declaration saying, so be that. Let that live in my life. I want that. So today I encourage you with everything you got to give God a loud, big, hearty amen. Amen. Well, if you got your Bibles, turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to have so much fun today. Uh, I, I spent a few years, my parents actually were in New Zealand in Taranaki. Um, so I'm an islander. You might not know that. I'd actually believe, I'd put money on me doing probably the best haka in this place. Like, I'm not just talking about the kamate, like the traditional. Like, I got depth in haka, like other hakas yet to be seen. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. Just prove it. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm, there's cameras rolling. It's going to get viral. It's not going to be good. My wife's going to call me back home and say, don't embarrass our family name again. <laughs> Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 36. Anyone got their Bible this morning? Anyone got the genuine leather Bible? 
You got a real, it's pleather. It's okay if it's pleather. Anyone just got a real, like you've been carrying this thing, got a cover and a highlighter? Come on, hold it up. You got the real Bible this morning. Let me see. These are real Christians. Hold up the Bible. Come on, just stick it up. This, this is your moment. Hold up your Bible. I got the mic. You got to do what I'm saying. Hold it up high. Hold it up high. Now keep it up if you're single. Keep it up if you're single. Single? Look, no. Pastor Adam's like, hey, make another run at it. No single. No single Bible holders here? Not a single? I mean, you missed your moment for a miracle. You should have, brought your, should have brought your Bible single, people. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Very familiar passage of Scripture. This is going to be the primary text today. And, and as you're turning there, I just want to preface, just so we're all on the same page, of what's taking place before these, these verses that we're going to read this morning. And, and what takes place before we get to Matthew chapter 26 is is something we've all seen before or a picture of, or whether you're new to a worship experience like this and you're not familiar with what Christ talked about or what Christ did, you probably are familiar with the supper that takes place right before we, we enter this passage of Scripture. It's the Last Supper. You, you've seen the picture. You've seen the portrait before. And Jesus had taken these, these 12 average individuals, these blue-collar workers, this tax collector, this, you know, this, this doctor, he's, you know, these fishermen. He's taking average people like you and me on a journey of a lifetime. And this journey on earth is coming to a climactic ending with Christ meeting the weight and pain and sins of the world on a cross and then defeating and conquering a grave. And before he gets to that moment, literally hours before He's facing a false judgment. He gathers his 12 followers. He gathers these 12 disciples. And this, this is a very awkward, intimate meal. It starts off with Jesus doing something he's never done before. I just want you to take you there. Go with me to this meal. He, he starts off by washing their feet. Can you imagine that the creator of the universe who confined himself to his own creation is now on his knees, washing the feet of the thing he created, removing the substance dirt in which he created them with. This sets the stage, the table, as it may be, for what's going to transpire that evening. And then Jesus begins to break the bread and say, this is my body, and begins to pass the cup, said, this is my blood that's going to be poured out for you. And in the midst of this awkward, intimate meal, Jesus throws these words out. One of you is going to betray me. What? Like, why the feet washing? Why the food? Why the, why the pedicure? Like, I don't get it, Jesus. Like, what do you mean one of us is going to betray you? And the, the disciples don't have it figured out. You know the context. Ju Judas leaves to go do what he's going to do. And they leave this room. Jesus continues this intimate conversation. And he looks at all of his disciples, the 11 that remain, and he says, All of you will fall away tonight on account of me. Imagine the conversation being had. And, of course, Peter's like the great Kiwi, the all black, and all of us. He stands up and he says, not me, Jesus. I will kill for you. I will shank somebody for you. I've been making a shank during the meal. Like, I will die for you, Jesus. Right? And all the all black fans said, amen. And then Jesus responds, even you, Peter, you will deny me three times tonight. Now, they enter in the garden, Matthew chapter 26. This is what follows. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, also known as James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. 
Then he returned to his disciples and he found these fools sleeping. It's a Jedediah translation. You know he wanted to write this in. Couldn't you men keep watching me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for you to take this cup unless, you, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found these idiots sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. If you're taking notes this morning, I encourage you to do. You're definitely more likely to get into heaven if you do take notes. It's biblically founded. If you're just visiting, that's a lie. I'm so sorry. You just never know, though. You might get to the gate, and they'd be like, check your work. You know, like it's, a, like it's a math problem. Like, how did you get here? Like, show me a single note that says Pastor Adam on it. So I'd encourage you to take notes this morning. The title of this message for the few moments we have today is Asleep at the Will. Asleep at the Will. Can you touch two to three people quickly, safely, and just say asleep at the will, asleep at the will, asleep, sleep, sleep, sleep at the will? Can I pray with you this morning? Father God, we just thank you that you're here. God, may we be overwhelmed with the reality that your word says when we worship you, you inhabit the praises of your people, which means the infinite one who time cannot contain, the God who breathed the heavens with a breath and holds the universes in the palms of his hand, that God is not standing off afar this morning. That God is not waiting and watching from heaven at a distance, but that God has entered in the room. God, you're here right now. And when you show up, everything changes. When you show up, sickness must be healed. When you show up, blind eyes must be opened. Chains must be sh broken. Every knee must bow. God, when you show up, we cannot stay the same. So I pray today, God, that you would encounter each and every one of us, that this would be a day, a, a, a moment in history that we can look back on and say, that moment I encountered God and everything changed forever. God, we don't want a standard Sunday service, an average Sunday service, an okay Sunday service. God, we want the unseen, the unknown, the unheard. God, may you do something today we have not seen before in Connect Church. God, I pray, Lord, that you would anoint my words, that there'd be an assignment to every heart, penetrating lives back to purpose, back to promise, back to destiny. I declare that everything that's dead in here today that's supposed to be alive would come back to life in Christ Jesus. And as always, God, I pray that I would not be a man that stands on a platform and becomes famous, but I would be a man that becomes the platform that you stand on and become famous this morning. God, when we leave here today, may the only name be talked about is not Jedediah or Pastor Adam. May the only name being talked about would be Jesus Christ alone. We give you all the praise and all the honor, and we thank you for the all blacks. And all God's people said, anyone in here like road trips? Like any road trippers in here? Like you've made the journey from here all the way up to Auckland like you've done it before? Like anyone just made the drive. Can't you go all the way down to the South Island as well? Like you can make the whole journey. Anyone do that before? Well, I grew up in Hawaii and uh, you can't take road trips there. It's a, like a small island. For those of you who are geographically challenged, like it's an island, you can't go anywhere else. And 30 minutes you go to the beach and 30 minutes you go to Volcano. And that was like the extent of our road trip journey. But my, my parents relocated us to the mainland, as we called it, coming from Hawaii to Miami. We became road trip fanatics. 
Like it was like everything we're going to do is in a 1994 blue Ford Windstar minivan. Come on, somebody. Now, it was also probably because my parents were missionaries. I lived in 100 houses before I was 25. And we were not wealthy missionaries, so we couldn't afford plane tickets. So they had us convinced that the way the kings and queens traveled for God was to consume every inch of the open pavement. How dare you fly? You have to consume the road in front of you. And to give you a little context, as I'm about to share with you the worst road trip story in history, you need to know a few things about my family. One, during this time, my parents were AG missionaries. My dad was always fasting. Now, there's an absolute biblical foundation for fasting, but it didn't look like that back then. It was like every day of his life, he was fasting. And in fact, when I look back, my mom never fasted. Like, I don't remember her once fasting. She would always go to my dad and say, Earl, you're the man of the house. We need breakthrough. We need you to fast. And he would begin the starvation process. And, and he would go 30, 40 days, like liquid only, like this is real. Now, to also understand, he was always fasting, but he was always breaking his fast. And I was the one who always caught him because I would clean out the cars on Saturdays. And every time I cleaned out the car, like, he wanted to get caught. He wanted someone to hold him accountable. And it's like, he would eat, like, a whole bag of chips but, like, leave the Doritos, like, right under the car. Like, you know, it was always packs of, like, turkey meat and bologna. But, like, he would leave it under the car in the same spots. One time I found not one, not two, but three Haagen-Dazs sticks. So he threw the box, it's an ice cream cone, if you don't know what it is. Haagen-Dazs is like the Bentleys of ice cream. It's like unbelievable. It's probably like Magnum for you guys here. It's like, so three of the sticks, like the box got thrown away. The ice cream was consumed, but he decided to leave the evidence of not one, not two, but three sticks. Someone had to keep him accountable. It was my job. So I would take these sticks, I'd bring them to my mom as evidence. Mom, I thought we needed a breakthrough, but apparently dad's breaking his fast. And then, of course, my mom would graciously kick the door down and storm in. Earl, we need breakthrough. Aren't you fasting? Like, this is... The journey of my life. Now, I'll also give you a little more context at this time. My parents were massive dog lovers. Any dog lovers in here? Awesome, a lot of dog Any cat lovers? Yeah, you can leave. This is the wrong, it's the, it's the wrong church. You need to connect somewhere else. I'm just, I'm just joking. We'll have a moment at the end of service. You can bring your cat. We'll offer it to the Lord. Let's just be honest. God's in heaven right now petting a dog. The devil's down in hell petting a feline, sitting there with a cat right now looking up. I'm just joking. Please stay with us. I'm not your pastor, so forgive me. But seriously, get rid of your animals. And all the dog lovers said, amen. amen. So we're dog lovers. So sorry. My dad's always fasting. We're, taking, we're about to take this long road trip from Miami to New York. It's basically like a day and a half drive. Now, also just in the context, my dad's uh, hard of hearing. He has a, a hearing disability. And at night, when it's dark, he's tired or he's exhausted. He's practically deaf. He's like basically, I can't believe someone laughed, but he, he's basically <laughs> deaf. So we're taking this journey. Let me tell you who's in the car. Are you with me this morning? We're in the 1994 blue Ford Windstar minivan. In the car is my dad, my mom, my older sister, my little sister, myself, a St. Bernard, and a Pomeranian, and luggage, driving up the coast. It was midsummer. It was hot, humid. When the windows would roll down, there was literally like a hair tornado in the car, like the dogs were shedding. We looked like circus freaks, people, when we got out at gas stations, covered in hair, grabbing bags of groceries because we weren't going to stop. We're missionaries. We packed our own sandwiches. Come on, somebody. So this is the journey. So we're getting ready to drive through the night. It's about 11 o'clock at night. My, my mom's getting tired, and she looks at my dad, and she says, Earl, are you awake? Jana, I got this. I'm awake. Earl, are you sure you want to drive through the night? Jana, we don't have time 
time to stop. We don't have the money to stay at a hotel. Let's just keep driving through the night. I got this. Okay, Earl, Jana, be quiet. Man of God, I got this. So my mom goes to sleep. The dogs go to sleep. St. Bernard down, Pomeranian down. Not down like dad, down like sleep. My little sister goes to sleep. In the front seat is my older sister. Now, she's got a blanket overhead because she just loves to communicate with me about my dad and doesn't want him to know because he can't hear, but he can read lips. So she's sitting in the front. I'm in the back seat, and my dad's driving, and we're just talking trash about my dad. And I was always, in, a, in an honorable way as kids, come on, people, don't judge me. Like, that was, I'm not doing it now. That was back then. I didn't have Jesus. Everyone's like, oh, I can't listen to this guy. Anyways, so we're starting, we're driving through the night, and my dad just starts, you know, he's getting tired, and starts putting his head back a little bit, and, you know, hits the rumble strips a few times, just a little Starts just, you know, looking around the car, begins to roll down the window, roll up the window, turn the AC on, turn the heat on. You know when you're just trying to stay awake, he starts scratching himself, like suddenly he got fleas all over, like just itching, and we're just like, oh, dad, you know, like don't fall asleep. And he begins to look around the car, and he notices between him and my sister in the center council is a brand new can of sour cream and onion Pringles. It's basically like being led into the wilderness for 40 nights and 40 days, being tempted by the enemy. And he looks down at the Pringles. Now, he doesn't look at my sister. He thinks she's asleep, doesn't look at me. He's literally driving. Pringles looks right back at my mom. Because every husband has a healthy fear of their wife. <laughs> Amen. Don't look at her, but you know you do. She'll kill you. <laughs> looks down. Pringles looks back at my mom. Pringles, mom. Pringles, mom. Back at the road. We're watching this take place. His arm begins to go numb, like just drops down. Now, remember, he's fasting. We need breakthrough. He begins to just sneak over, and me and my sister start interceding in the spirit. Like, we're just like, no, God, not today. Please, we need breakthrough. We're never going to overcome. We need to change nations. He pops the top, opens the seal. Literally, the aroma explodes into the car. At that moment, we knew he was going to sin. There's no doubt. We knew he was going to fall in temptation. And so he's literally going down. He grabs one chip. He slides it up his body, sticks it in his mouth, does not chew can't risk waking anybody up in the car, just swallows. For those of you who don't know what a Pringle is, it's shaped like this, just bleeding internally. You know his throat's all cut up. It's completely bleeding. Goes back down, man of faith, grabs three chips this time. Holy Spirit, Father and Son, little Trinity action. Brings it back up, puts his chip in his mouth, starts eating the three chips. He begins to just devour the whole thing of Pringles. About 25 minutes later, we just realize he's up, we're good. Me and my sister fall asleep, it's like 12.30. Only to be woken up half an hour later with the car spinning off the road. Literally, car is spinning, we are flying, dogs are flying, my mom's flying. She's like in mid-rebuke, like she woke up rebuking him. Oh, I thought you were! Like, go, we spin off into the ditch, we sleep there. We just sleep there that night. No one died, no one got hurt. And in the next morning, nothing to do with the message just makes me feel good. Everyone's in their same spots. My dad's there, empty can of Pringles in front of him. And I'm in the back seat, and I go, hey, Jabina, you just passed me the Pringles. My dad's just like sweat and tears combined at the same time, merging. No, 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 right next to dad. He's never been, we never ate them. Brand new can. Can you just send them back to me, Jabina? And my dad's literally just sweating. And as he gets to me, me and my sister open at the same time, and we go, they're gone. Dad, because we knew. And my mom goes, Earl. My dad goes, let me explain. Earl, I thought you were a man of God. We need breakthrough. Poor guy. Now, in defense of my dad, he said, 
he ate the Pringles, at least started with one, because he was getting tired and he thought it might keep him up. So he figured if he ate the whole can after that one gave him a little energy, that he'd be up through the whole night. And, and when you really look at the story, in all honesty, he was doing everything he could to stay awake. In fact, he had no desire to fall asleep, fall asleep on his family, fall asleep in a car. For him falling asleep, he actually was putting not just other lives at risk, but his own life at risk. He was putting his most valuable possessions at risk. His wife and his kids, his children and his legacy was at risk. And, and he didn't have a desire to fall asleep, but he found his life in that moment. He found himself in a posture and a position that would cause him to fall asleep no matter if he wanted to stay awake. You know, when we look at the story of the disciples in the garden, it's, it's very apparent that there's a sobriety of the moment. You, you've already been, a, you know, a part of the intensity of that evening where he's washing the feet, and then he begins to say, listen, you're going to fall away tonight. Imagine you're there. You're going to deny me tonight. And then he grabs Peter, James, and John. These are not like the other disciples. These are the three individuals that Jesus has spent more time with than any other human beings on the planet. These were his homies. These are the ones who saw Jairus' 12-year-old daughter raised from death back to life. These are the ones who are at the transfiguration. And Jesus says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Let me grab you and please just stay awake with me. He didn't say for days or for years or something unrealistic or supernatural. It was super practical. Just keep your eyes open with me. And I honestly believe that these disciples wanted to stay awake. I don't think they walked away from the sobriety and the intensity of the moment and just said, forget Jesus. Like, no, we're going to bed. No, they wanted to stay awake. But what's not recorded in this passage of Scripture, what's not written in these pages is probably the most important part. Something takes place when Jesus leaves them. They find themselves in the garden in a posture or a position that allows them to fall asleep even though they desperately want to stay awake. And you're saying, Jedediah, why is this significant to me? Because the reality is, friend, no matter how passionate you are, no matter how many messages you hear, you have some of the greatest communicators in the world standing at this church, leading a movement and leading this local expression. And no matter how many podcasts or conferences you turn in on or how many Bethel worship experiences you sit in on, it doesn't matter how much excitement you have. It does not matter how much vision you have. You could be 10 feet away from Jesus. But if your life is in a posture or position that causes you to fall asleep on Monday, you will fall asleep on Jesus every single time when we have a world that desperately needs us to be awake. No matter if you want to or not, you could fall asleep every week if your life is in a posture or a position that causes you to fall asleep. It happened in the garden and it happened in our lives. And today I want to talk to you about the four postures, the four positions that precede sleep. It happens naturally. And it happens spiritually. The four postures, the four positions that precede sleep. Be with me this morning. Number one, the first posture, the first position that precedes sleep. It happened in the garden. It happens in our lives. Number one, we stop moving. Number one, we stopped moving. At some point in the garden, they walked away from Jesus. They were in the middle of this prayer meeting. They felt the weight of the moment, but somehow they just, they just stopped moving. I, I don't know about you, but I've never seen anyone fall asleep moving. Have you ever just seen someone jogging? Just like, hey, great day. Just like... <laughs> Have you ever seen just someone like, I'll take that cot, like a long black, just like, have you ever seen anyone fall asleep moving? Like, I have a three-year-old son. I have one of, one of my three kids, Dalen Justice. He's far from God, needs Jesus. I'm praying today's the day. He's definitely not saved yet. And when we give him a bath that night, we have to get him from the bath to the bed without his feet touching the ground. Because the moment he starts moving, he can't stop. 
And once he starts moving, he can't fall asleep. It starts off with a little twitch, a little jiggle, and then all of a sudden he's moving and he's running, and, and then I'm chasing him and I'm tackling him and I'm holding him in his bed and not again, and demons get out, and he's choking out his animals, he's hitting the crib. This is a true story. He can't fall asleep because he's moving. Do you know when it comes to Christians, we're never supposed to stop moving? Do you know that we're a part of a kingdom that's always advancing? We have a God that's taking us from glory to glory to glory to glory. But what happens is that we face a difficult season, opposition. We face a trial or a tribulation, a circumstance we weren't prepared for. And instead of moving through it, we stopped and we got stuck in it. And what was supposed to be just a moment or a season that we walked through is now something we become stuck in and it defines our life. So let me tell you how this looks like. Maybe you had a relationship issue. Maybe you got, went through a divorce or a bad breakup or multiple breakups. That was just a season. That was not God's plan. That wasn't God's best. God's in the middle of working all things together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. But because you got stuck in it, you're now be defined by it. And your life is defined by relationship hardship. Your life is defined by breakup or divorce or pain or heartache. That wasn't God's plan. You're just supposed to keep on moving. Maybe you made a bad financial decision, and that was just a season. Maybe you lost on an investment or lost in a business, but instead of continuing to move through it, you got stuck in it, and now your life is defined as debt. Now your life is defined as lack. Now your life is defined as poverty. Now his life is defined as financial crisis. Not God's plan, but you stopped moving. Maybe you tried a drug for a moment or drinking for a moment. That was supposed to be a season that you moved on through and became a part of the wonderful testimony of your life, but because you stop moving you got stuck in it and now you're defined by addiction you're defined by struggle you're defined by a drug you know what the word for God is for you today if you've been stuck in a season and you haven't moved for a long time it's time to start moving again it's time to start pursuing again it's time to get up and start moving I love the way that Paul puts this in Philippians verse chapter 3 verse 12 says I'm not saying that I have this all together that I made it but I'm well on my way reaching out for Christ who has so wondrously reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm off running and I'm not turning back. I love what Paul says. It's so beautiful. He says, listen, I'm not just moving towards counseling. I'm not just moving towards a book. I'm not just moving towards a 12-step program. I'm moving towards Jesus. Have you been stuck in a season or in a situation? Can I give you a little advice tomorrow? Wake up and move towards Jesus. Wake up and move towards prayer. Wake up and move towards worship. Come on. Wake up and move towards a connect troop. Wake up and move towards serving on the team. Wake up and move towards God. Are you hearing me this morning? Don't start moving towards Jesus. You might be saying, well, Jedediah, I cannot run. I've been stuck for so long. Well, you might not be able to run, but can you reach what did Paul say I reach out for the thing that Christ so wondrously reached out for me do you know there's people in this room today that you know are moving towards Jesus their families are growing their lives are being blessed their identity is being established you know they're running towards Jesus you might not be able to run with them but you can reach and grab a hold of them grab a cell phone number take a visit to their house say I need you in my life watch your life get caught up in the divine momentum of heaven because you hitched yourself on to someone who's moving towards Christ. Can I tell you something, Connect Church? Don't stop moving. Preaching better than you're responding this morning. I'll work for it. The devil can get you to stop. He can get you to sleep. 
Second posture, the second position that precedes sleep. It happened in the garden. It happened in their life. Number one, they stopped moving. Number two, for them to fall asleep, they had to lay down. Number two, we lay down. We lay down. I love what Ephesians 6.13 says in the never incorrect version. It says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Has anyone ever wondered why we're putting on all of this armor, but we're not fighting, we're standing? It says put on the full armor of God and stand. It doesn't say put on the full armor of God and fight. I was having a conversation with God. I was like, well, what's the deal? Like, this is a lot of gear to put on if we're not going to fight. And he goes, because the battle's mine. I don't need you to fight. I just simply need you to stand. In fact, if you knew your position, I want you to hear me, friend. If you knew your position as a Christian, which means you've been resurrected, not will be, but have been resurrected as Christ, seated with Christ in heavenly places. He told me, he says, Jedediah, if you understood the posture of your life seated in heaven, you're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. You're not living for eternity. You're living from eternity. And if you don't stand, you won't be able to see the level of the victory that I'm about to provide for. You have to stand to get a better perspective because the battle is the Lord's. I don't know if you've ever, uh, maybe you have a testimony and you're familiar, not foreign to physical altercation, aka a lot of words to say fighting. And uh, I grew up, you know, in Hawaii and Polynesian culture, we have a tendency to fight. And, uh, you know, I've seen some fights, I've been in some fights, I've got a testimony, don't judge me. Or maybe you've watched like a Rocky movie before where there's fighting going on. And there's always that moment where there's the, the underdog, which say it's Rocky, and then there's the, the adversary, the opponent. And that opponent's usually bigger, come on somebody, usually stronger, usually set to win. But that opponent's throwing everything he can at Rocky. He's throwing everything he can at the underdog. And there's that moment in the fight where although Rocky or the underdog has not been knocked down, he, or he hasn't knocked the opponent out, he simply just hasn't been knocked down. And the opponent's sitting there throwing everything he got and then realizes, if I've thrown everything that I've gotten, my best punch, my best strategy, my best game plan, and Rocky's still standing, then there's nothing I can do I'm going to lose. There's something significant, friend, as the body of Christ, when the devil's thrown everything at you he can, where he's tried to attack your health, he's tried to attack your family, he's tried to attack your finances, he's tried to destroy your reputation, he sowed gossip, he sowed discord. It's something significant when you come into church on a Sunday morning for October fire, and guess what? The devil's done everything he can, but you're still standing. You're still here. You're still, is there anybody this morning that'd be willing to get on the feet for a moment and say despite what the devils try to do that despite the attack of enemy over my church over my business over my family guess what devil i'm still here i'm still worshiping i'm still giving i'm still love come on is there anyone in here today that would release a shout of praise to heaven and say devil come on say this with me devil you've given it your best shot but I'm still here. Now give God a shout of praise like you mean it this morning. Still standing. Grab your seats. We don't got time for that. Still standing. Anyone just feel that this morning? 
not going to lie, it's not the first time I've preached this message. But every time I get to this point, something inside of me just takes a, a long glare down at hell and says, guess what? Still here. Shouldn't be holding a mic. Shouldn't be loving people relentlessly. Shouldn't be worshiping. Some of you, you shouldn't be in church. You have every reason not to love others, not to forgive, not to move on, not to celebrate. But you know that you just showing up lets the devil know he lost. Still standing. Don't ever forget the power of just a stand. The question we have to ask ourselves outside of the Sunday context when it comes to Monday through Saturday, do we stand for anything anymore? Do we stand for anything anymore? Do, does our lives outside of this room stand for justice? Does it stand for mercy? Does it stand for forgiveness? Does it stand for grace? Does it stand for love? I live in a nation that actually has God on our dollar. And you know, we've started to lose schools and lose government systems and lose identities and lose marriages. Why? Not because we've stopped fighting, but because simply we stopped standing. The enemy's coming in and just walking over a church, not because it's not fighting, but just simply because it's not standing. Do you know, friends, that when it comes to the, the truth of God, when it comes to what God said, we don't have the luxury to be objective. Because you know that when we stop standing, we start tolerating. And what we tolerate, we perpetuate. As believers, if we are not a part of, hear me please, in my heart, and I'm on the other side of this, if we are not a part of the solution, we are a part of the problem. As Christians, Christ followers, imitators of Christ, if we are not inserted into our spheres of society and making a difference in a part of the solution, then we are a part of the problem. Because when it comes to truth, we don't have the luxury of being neutral or objective. When it comes to God's word, we don't have the luxury to say, hey, I'm just not going to get into that, or I don't want you to hear my opinion, or we started to masquerade this thing called grace under the definition of tolerance. Can I tell you something, friend? Grace is not tolerance. That is not grace. Letting people do whatever they want so that they don't feel judged or condemned, that is not grace. Jesus never once started a conversation with truth in it and apologized. He never said, I'm so sorry what I'm going to tell you about raising children. I'm so sorry what I'm going to tell you about freedom. I'm so sorry what I'm going to tell you about marriage. He never apologized for any of these things. Why? Because he knew the truth wasn't condemning. It was freeing. The Bible says the truth will set you free. Maybe the absence of freedom in our world today is the absence of truth in our world today. No, I'm not giving us permission to get back to the soapbox and start condemning and cursing and turning or burning people back to heaven. No, we don't need to be news reporters telling the world how dark the darkness is. We're called to be a light to show the world how bright his light can be. So what does this look like? On Monday, it's not, hey, you're a sinner and you're lost and that's an affair and you're an adulterer and you suck and you're going to burn. No, we don't need that. You get to stand on Monday and say, this is what loving God looks like. This is what being forgiven looks like. This is what being in it with my spouse looks like this is what raising children's God's way looks like this is what waiting till I'm married looks like this is how good following Jesus can be I love that you have pastors that aren't ecstatic simply because you sit on Sunday they're ecstatic because you stand on Monday and if we don't stand for something as a church we'll bow to anything as a church the devil can get you to stop and if he can get you to lay down he can get you to sleep. Number three, are you with me this morning? We, went, we just went right after it. Just want to let you know, like, welcome. Now we're just going right after the word. <laughs> Number one, we stop moving 
Number two, we lay down. Number three, and we could at least get the keys up to make this a little more anointed and expedite the process. <laughs> Number three, we get comfortable. Happened in the garden, happened in our life. It happened spiritually. It happens physically. We stop moving. We, we lay down and we, we get comfortable. I, I don't know about you, but when I go to sleep at night, I got to get comfortable. Like I, I live in a silver tube, people, an airplane. Like, all the time, it's really difficult to sleep on these planes. So when I get home, like, I got to get comfortable. I'm a pillow freak, to be honest. Like, I'm, I'm five, six pillows deep every night. In fact, when my wife had our first kid, Anaya, she had a body pillow. Anyone got a body pillow before, the full-blown body pillow couple? Like, no one wants to admit to it? Cool, I'll be the weird one with a <laughs> body pillow. Body pillow and a belly wedge. It's like a little wedge you stick under your belly. So the moment Anaya was born, I said, thank you, Jesus. That is mine. It's mine now. I'm sleeping with it every night. In fact, we've had two kids since. I'm like, you know how to use Amazon Prime. You can buy your own body pillows because I got my body pillow. And in the winter, when I put a little weight on, I use the belly wedge. It alleviates the love handles. It's the truth. Don't judge me. I got to get comfortable. You know what I'm talking about. Women are the best at this. You come home. Don't look at her now, husband. But let's just, let's just in theory, let's theorize. You come home. You look like superwoman when you go out. You're done up. Your hair is all done. Face is painted on. You're clicking around. You walk into your house. In moments, you go from superwoman to average mom, right? Like their hair was curled, and suddenly it's straightened and it's up in a bun with a stick in it. You had makeup on, completely white. You put on one long t-shirt, right? This is just one long, it's the lightest t-shirt ever made. It's been passed down from you to generation to generation. It's changed colors multiple times. If it touched water, it would disintegrate. Like you just hang it out to dry, come on. You, you're flowing down the stairs with one big sheet on like a ghost. Kids are running around, it's Patrick Swayze. Like it's just another level. How many say I gotta get comfortable when I go to sleep? I got to get, you know what I'm talking about. You got to have the fan at the right speed. You got to have the heater at the right temperature. You got to have the cool side of the pillow, the right thread count on your sheets. You got to get comfortable. Do you know what the drug of choice is for our generation? And I'm not talking about a young generation. I'm talking about everybody alive that can hear God's voice today. You know what the drug of choice is? Comfort. Drug of choice for Christians today is comfort. Even culturally, we want everything easy and convenient. Can I go there? And comfortable as possible. Think about it. We want our relationships easy. We want our food fast. We want to get rich quick. We want to lose 30 pounds in 30 days. We want fame overnight. We want cheat sheets instead of study guides. We want handout instead of hard work. We want welfare instead of a job. We want God's promises without God's processes. We want God's blessing for our pleasure instead of for his purpose. We want a vision that sleeps and we want our destiny at a discount. Can I tell you something, friend? Greatness never goes on sale and vision never sleeps and the greatest things in life will cost you something. And what I love about our Savior who modeled this life is that when it came back to buying back his unique possession, humanity, he didn't go to the enemy and his father and say, how can I get them back comfortably? 
He didn't say, do I really got to confine myself to an infant? Do I really have to be dependent on my own creation to teach me how to walk, to bathe me and to feed me? Do I really have to go through the process of meeting new friends and maybe having a bad hair day or a bad, bad face day? Do I really have to wait 30 years before I preach my first message? There's a word to young people out there saying, giving the mic, Jesus, God with skin on, was cutting wood in his father's shop saying, I can be patient and wait till you say it's time. He didn't say, you know what, forget the mocking and the spitting and the abusing you know what the cross is overrated what about a poison drip and the grave thing I'm just not going to do it no when it came to him buying back your life his most valuable possession he said I will pay the greatest price I'll be humiliated I will be spit upon the hands that I created I will allow to hit me I will carry a cross naked I will hang on a tree for all to see I will spend three nights in the grave in the face of the enemy because the greatest thing in his life which was your life cost him his entire life. The greatest things in life will cost you something. And Christ didn't die to give you comfort. He died to give you a calling. And Luke 9 puts it this way. Are you with me this morning, Connect Church? He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves daily and follow me. They must what? Pick up their cross daily. This is a verse we have not highlighted. We have blocked out with a permanent pen. Like, what's this daily thing? He, he's literally said every day waiting for you and me. Do you know today, right now, waiting for you and me is a cross. And on our cross is our comfort. And we avoid the cross. Our generation avoids the cross. Young people, we avoid the cross because we think the point of the cross is suffering. We think the point of the cross is discomfort. We think the point of the cross is shame and embarrassment and pain. That's not the point of the cross. That's just the part of the cross. If you knew the point of the cross, we could easily embrace a part of the cross. We could easily be willing to serve when it's not easy. We'd be really easy to show up like the band did for seven hours yesterday. We'd be really easy to say, I'm going to serve when it's not fun or sit in a different seat or not care about my car park space. Why? Because this isn't the point. The point of the cross is new life. The point of the cross is resurrection. The point of the cross is the same power that raised Christ from the dead living inside of you. And me, come on, I'm preaching better than you're responding. If you knew the point. If you knew the point, you'd easily embrace a part pursue comfort. See, the comforts of today are the chains of tomorrow. Comfort, hear me, friend, produces complacency. And today's complacency is tomorrow's captivity. And I'm not just talking about bad things. Because if you think about your sin journey, it never started off with you saying, I love where it ends. You, right? You're like, I want to be in jail. I want to be divorced. I want to be strung out. Like, no one's, that's the goal. I want everyone to not like me, including myself, because I'm stealing from them because I have a meth habit. Like, no one's like, that's the ultimate goal. It starts off with you being comfortable with the first step, complacent with the first sip, complacent with the first text to the person that's not your wife. Complain, like, we just become comfortable with step one. But this also happens with good things. Do you know that we can become complacent in our worship, complacent in our praise, complacent in our giving? We can become comfortable where once this was a breakthrough, but now this is your limit. 
where once generosity was that breakthrough, but now you're giving within your means. Friend, can I tell you something? If you're giving and it doesn't scare you, there's no faith involved, which means you're giving a gift, but it can't please God unless it has faith attached to it. If church has come to, and I'm so sorry to say this, please do not hate the messenger. If church, I just even feel bad saying it because I just want you guys to like me. If church has, has starts evolving around who's in my seat, how far did I walk from the car park, and how loud is the worship, then it's become about you and it's not about him. The sacred gathering has somehow been about you getting glory instead of him getting glory. And if the devil can get you to be comfortable and complacent, he can get you to be enchained to the thing that once freed you. Number four, the last posture. Are you with me today? I'm going to move quickly. I've already gone a little long, but it's October fire. We got one service. We got nothing. We got nothing going on today but Jesus. Come on. The last posture. Number one, we stop moving. Number two, we lay down. Number three, we get comfortable. And number four, we close our eyes. We close our eyes. It's the final fourth posture and position. We can get the band up. I want you to to see what happens when we close our eyes. I'm not going to have time to break through all the scriptural revelation, but you can just throw these verses on the screen. But a couple things happens when we close our eyes. One, when we close our eyes, we lose sight of what God's promised. This is the most dangerous place a Christian could be, alive without the sight of promise. Because God's promise is the only thing that's going to get you up. God's promise is the only thing that's going to cause you to stand. God's promise is the only thing that's going to keep you moving. You know what? I don't understand Christians who don't know his promises. If you want to know your future, know God's promises. If you want to know his plan, know God's promises. If you want to know who you are, know God's promises. It's a secret weapon. It's the thing that says this is where God's taking you. This is what God's going to do through you. You've got to know God's promises. But if the devil can get you to close your eyes, you lose sight of what he's promised you and your family and your legacy. Second thing that happens when we close our eyes, when we close our eyes, we lose sight of who's with us. You know the story of Elijah in the Bible and Elisha, excuse me, and he's sitting there with a servant and you know the story, they're surrounded by an army and the servant comes up as a servant would do with that weird nasally, you know, insecure, I'm afraid voice, Elisha, what are we going to do? We're surrounded. Sorry, that's how I thought back, they talked back then. What are we going to do? There's an army surrounding us. This is what you sound like when you complain to your leaders, just so you know. How are we going to build a building? No one's going to come. I don't know. Someone's going to show up to my connect group. (laughs) Who does that? I'm jet lagged. Forgive me. (laughs) I love what Elijah says. He says, God, open his eyes. Open his eyes to see what I see. And in that moment, God opened his eyes, the Bible says. And he realized that there was an army of the Lord surrounding the army surrounding them. Can I tell you something, friend, if you can open your spiritual eyes this morning, no matter what you're facing, what season you're in, how difficult it may be, do you know that there might be an army pressing in on you on all sides, but if you could open your eyes today, you'd see that there's an army of the Lord surrounding the army surrounding you. You might be in a storm, but if you can open your boat, you'd realize God's in the boat with you. We have a God that's not just on your side, he's by your side. Third thing, third thing, quickly, moving quickly. Third thing that happens, we lose sight of what God's promised. We lose sight of who's with us. We lose sight of what God's placed in front of us. You know the story of the Samaritan woman. Jesus is there. They're having this, you know, this, this moment at the well, and the disciples come back, and Jesus looks at him and says, you can put the verses on. I won't read them. He says, hey, you have a saying that four months from now there'll be a harvest. But he says, open your eyes 
and see that the harvest is ripe right now. Do you know, if you could open your eyes, friends, many of you had said you don't understand where we live and in the Capitol Coast, like it's, it's hard ground. It's unharvested ground. Souls aren't going to be easy. You don't know my work context. You don't know my environment. No, if you could open your eyes, friends, you'd realize that we're living in a time, in an era where people are desperate for the Jesus you have. People that would never come home are ready to come home. Prodigals are returning. The souls are turning to Paul's. There's people in your community, across your street, friends and family members that you thought I would never come to Jesus, but if you would open your eyes, you'd see that he's placed a harvest in front of you right now. And the lastly, number four, when we close our eyes, we lose sight of what God's doing among us. And this is the most dangerous place for the body of Christ to be. Do you know right now, friends, that just because of the advancement of innovation, communication, and transportation, that we will reach 1.5 billion people that have ever, never heard the name Jesus with the name Jesus in our lifetime. I don't know if you heard me. Do you know there's three billion people right now on the planet that have not heard an accurate gospel message? But because of the advancements of innovation, communication, transportation, and technology, we will reach all three billion people for Jesus in our life. Do you know that they could not say that 20 years ago? I want you to get this. 10 years ago, we could not say that. Eight years ago, we could not say that. 50 years ago, they could not say what we're saying. Do you know that six, seven years ago, no one had ever heard of a nation gathering together for a Christian event or a president passing a bill through Congress, making a campaign called One Nation One Day, not just a holiday, but a law mandating every legal entity in an entire nation to serve the church and its initiative. Do you know that over the last... Three One Nation One Day, 1.1, 1.6, 3 million people face to face. Are you kidding me? If you can see, do you know that this church wasn't called Connect Church a year ago? Do you know that the life, new life movement looks drastically different than it did a decade ago? Can you see what God's doing among you right now? He wants to take your city. He wants to take this nation. If you could see, you cannot be quiet. You cannot sit down. You cannot stop moving. You cannot close. If you can see. Stay standing. If you're not standing, please stand. I know I've screamed and I've sweated a lot. My prayer in this moment right now is that God would remove the blinders from our eyes so that each and every one of you could see what he's actually doing among you right now. What he wants to do among you this week, not just this lifetime, but this year. If you could just see what God's doing. Do you, I don't, do you realize that we're living in a generation that is fulfilling the prophecies that have never been fulfilled before? That, we're, that the clouds of heaven are, are being outweighed and, and, the, and the barriers are being broken down by the legends of the faith gone before us, leaning in, saying, I can't believe you get to be alive now. Do you know how many people have pioneered New Zealand? Do you know how many words? We know for how many words have gone out about what's going to come. And I'm here to say, we're living in the fulfillment of those words. I'm not talking about a decade from now. I'm talking about right now. with this it says in Matthew 16 19 says I'll give you the keys of the kingdom 
of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I've given you the keys of the kingdom. I've given you the keys, hear me, friend, to the vehicle called the church. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Do you realize that God in his divine wisdom and grace has tossed you the keys to his vehicle and he's sitting in the back seat? And he's saying, listen, wherever you go, I go. Wherever you take the church is as far as the church goes. Listen, you don't come to church. You become the church. A church is something you come to. It's something you leave, which means it doesn't exist again until Sunday. But no, when you leave, you're leaving as the church. It's the church doing the educating. It's the church doing the business developing. It's the church doing the medical practitioning. You're the church. And he's sitting back. He's throwing you the keys. And he's saying, wherever you go, I'll go. Whatever you do, I'll do. You're driving the vehicle. And whatever you do, friend, whatever you do while you're driving this vehicle in this city, in this nation, whatever you do, just please don't fall asleep at the wheel. Just please don't fall asleep at the wheel. Can I have heads bowed and eyes closed this morning? Heads bowed and eyes closed. I just want to pray for two groups of people this morning. We're going we're gonna to move through this quickly. But if you're here today, one, pray for two groups. One, you're here today and saying, Jedediah, I don't, I don't have a relationship with this God you're talking about. I, I haven't received, I would use this language, I haven't received the, the gift of his son, the gift of his grace. The Bible says it's something you could not earn, you could not deserve. It's been freely given to you. You have to receive it like a gift. And really, if you're being honest today, maybe your, your, your language doesn't say it in that way. But what your heart's really saying is, I need help. What your heart's really saying is, I can't do this by myself. I've tried to get out of it. I've tried to shake this season. I've tried to shake this problem. I, I just can't lead my life alone any longer. I need help. And if you're here today and you're saying, I need help, what you're really saying is, I need Jesus. He's the only one that can make sense of your mess. He's the only one that can actually take your weakness and turn it into his strength. He's the only one that can restore what was lost. He's the only one that knows your purpose and your identity and your desires and his divine plan. It's him that you need, friend. And if you're here today, we're going to help you make that decision, receive that gift of grace, and really be in right standing for eternity. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, we're going to say this together as a church family. And we're going to say it out loud so you're going to feel comfortable repeating it. And if that's you, could we get everyone here this morning? Could you say these words with me? Can you say, dear Jesus? Come on, church, say this with me in confidence. Dear Jesus, I need you. I've made mistakes. I've messed up. And I need you in my life. Would you come into my heart this morning? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you make me brand new? Thank you for loving me. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Today, would you become my Lord? And would you be my Savior?